John 10, if you'll turn there with me, please. I want to talk about the voice that awakens the dead this morning. And so since this is Palm Sunday, I thought it would be really good to do something in and near uh, the last week of Jesus' life and that we would um, just kind of take a look at that and then that will kind of lead us into uh, next week and also Good Friday. John gives seven clear signs of the deity and the greatness of Jesus. And every one of them are designed by Jesus. And John, as he's writing, is wanting to affirm that people would see and they would know who Jesus is. And so there's two purposes of these seven great signs that Jesus does in John's gospel. One, that they affirm that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that Israel has been waiting for, that he is the Son of God. And secondly, they are written to increase faith. Jesus did them, not only just to heal people, but to increase the people's faith in them. And let me just remind you of those. John 2, he changed the water into wine. John 4, he healed the official's son. John 5, uh, he heals the paralyzed man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. John 6, he feeds 5,000 men. That could be, some scholars have said, upwards to 20,000 people were there that day when you include women and children. John 6, he walks on the water. John 9, a man who's been born blind is given light by Jesus. And then the one we're going to look at today in John chapter 11, that is the greatest one. Not that any other, of the other ones are weak, but he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now we will see today, Lazarus dies and he's risen from the dead through the power of Jesus. But this was not the first time that Jesus had done this. There were two other instances where he touched people's lives and they were dead and they came alive one is in mark 5 with Jairus's daughter um, and then the other one is in Luke 7 with the widow of Nain's um, son those the person was just dead for a very brief time and we will see today that Lazarus was dead for four days an interesting question I think we ought to ask as you come to John chapter 11 it is only found this significant thing of this man who's dead for four days and comes alive again is only found in John's gospel. And so you have to ask the question, why? Why, why is this, this huge event only found in John? And we're forced to kind of speculate, but I think it's kind of interesting to think of. The other writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they wrote at the very latest their gospels by A.D. 61. Luke probably A.D. 61 John wrote his gospel somewhere between 80, 80, and 90, probably in the mid-80s. So it's quite possible that when Mark and Matthew and Luke wrote their gospel, Lazarus was still alive. And writing about him could cause, from government leaders, from the Jewish leaders, could have caused some additional trouble for Lazarus and draw attention to him. But none of the others write about this significant thing that happens in the life of Lazarus. But I wanted us to look at the context of, of kind of where we are, we're going to be today in John chapter 11 so that we can kind of see what is kind of surrounding uh, the time frame of things. And so in John chapter 10, verse 22, if you'll look with me there. At the time of the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. Just stop there for a moment. This is most likely late December. 
This is late December. Sometimes the Feast of Dedication would take place in November, but the majority of the time it took place in late December. And so at the time of the Feast of Dedication that took place in Jerusalem, it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him. They said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, but you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Look at 30. And I and the Father are one. Huge statement by Jesus. And they're going to hear this in the temple, in the temple where they come to worship, and they're just going to lose their minds. Look at the next verse, 32, 31. And so they're in the temple, in church, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Notice the word again. This is not the first time that they have wanted to do this. 32. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? In verse 33, they said, the Jews answered him, It's not for the good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. We go down to verse 39, and again they sought to arrest him. Now I want you to go now to John chapter 11, we're going to go to the end. I want to just make sure you kind of see the context, you've got to see this, because of some of the things that happened in the story. John eleven thirty-five, fifty-five. 55, excuse me. This is after the raising of Lazarus, and it says this, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know that they might arrest him. So just wanted to kind of give you the time frame of things. So in late December, Jesus is in the temple. He makes the statement, I and the Father are one. They lose their minds. They get stones. They pick them up. They want to stone Jesus right then and there. Late December, he dies early in April. So in a period of about four months, this event happens in John 10, and he leaves there, and he goes to an area Another area called Bethany, the main story today is going to be a place called Bethany, but they're two different cities. Jesus is going to go to where John the Baptist did all of his baptizing, and he will spend from late December until he gets to John chapter 11, when he comes into Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, he will spend the time there for four months ministering, and many people, the scripture tells us, come to faith in John 10 as Jesus is out there where John had laid the groundwork and he had done all of this baptizing, many, many believers at the end of John chapter 10 tells us came to know Jesus and to trust in Jesus at that time. So let's look now in John chapter 11. So that's the context. Many, tried to, I looked a lot this week trying to figure out, okay, when did the raising of Lazarus happen? How close to um, the Passover? How close did this happen? Uh, what I found probably is a more likely thing. Jesus came in the triumphal entry on Monday. Uh, many scholars believe that the event of the raising of Lazarus took place on the Wednesday before the Monday when Jesus came in. So what we're about to see is the last and greatest 
miracle that Jesus did outside of when he picked up the ear in the garden and put it back on Malchus's head. This is, that was the very last miracle that Jesus did, but this is the last public miracle that Jesus did. And so we got a lot of room to go for it. So are y'all ready to go? We got 44 verses to get through. So we're just going to kind of not read it all. We're going to read sections of it and kind of look at things. The first thing I want to see this morning is that the glory of God in all things is to be the priority. And we're going to see that the, the focus of this is the case. Let's look, John 11, 1 through 5. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Just stop there just for a moment. This event that John is describing here where Mary anoints Jesus hasn't even taken place yet. The story of that is in John 12, uh, the first part of John chapter 12. But John is wanting to reference so that because back then everybody was named Mary, okay? If you'll go on the day of the resurrection, there's women everywhere or at the cross, and they're all named Mary. So John is wanting to identify who this Mary is. It's not Jesus' mother. It's not um, Mary, the father of Clopas. I think that's right. Um, well, I don't know. Anyway, I shouldn't have said There's just lots of Marys that are around. And so, so John identifies. Look at verse 3. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So let's talk just for a moment in the text here about the glory of God in all things. The Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, greatly affirms over and over that God does what God does for one singular purpose— that his name and his glory would be lifted up. And the reason God wants his name and his glory lifted up is that's the greatest thing that you and I need in our lives. We need to see the greatness and the glory of God. His name brings healing. His name brings hope. All of these things. And so the scripture affirms that over and over. Um, God created us for his glory. This is what Isaiah says, 43, 6. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory. God restored Israel from exile, Ezekiel writes, for the glory of his name. This is Ezekiel 36, 22. He says that I am about to act for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations, and I will vindicate the holiness of my name, of my great name. Jesus endured the final hours of suffering for God's glory. This is John twelve twenty seven. He says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. And then Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And it's amazing, and then a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God does what God does for the greatness of his glory, and the greatest thing that God can give you and I is his glory. And so that's why it needs to be exalted. Paul wrote, do everything you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do everything that you do for the glory of God. So the text tells us here, according to Jesus, this illness is not going to lead to death, but this illness is for the glory of God. So that's the highest aim, the glory of God, to glorify God. But in Bethany, 
The highest earthly crisis that you and I can face is happening and taking place. There is a family whom Jesus is really, really tight with. He loves this family. He cares for this family. As John 11 opens, we immediately know that Jesus' friend, Lazarus, is sick. And he's not just sick where he's going to be better in a few days. He is sick to the point that he is not going to make it. And so there's a crisis in Bethany. The Lord's friend has a great need, and Jesus is not in town to heal him. And this reality sets off a crisis in this family that he's not going to make it if Jesus doesn't come and Jesus doesn't do something. And so they send someone to tell Jesus about what is going on with Lazarus in Bethany. They know where Jesus is, word has gotten out, and so they send someone with the news. And maybe they have forgotten that Jesus doesn't have to be there to actually heal someone. We know the faith of the centurion, if you remember that story, where the centurion tells Jesus, Jesus says, hey, I'll come with you. And the centurion says, no, you don't have to come. I'm a man of authority. I get it. I say this, and people have to do this. Just say the word, and you can bring healing. And on that day, Jesus spoke there, and the servant was healed. That's in Matthew chapter 8, verse 8. Here's what we learn about Lazarus. His name means God is my help. And he is in a crisis moment. And he needs what his name means to happen and take place in his life. He is sick. He is on death's bed. And he needs God to come and God to help. Now watch what the text reveals to us this morning. The text reveals that people whom Jesus deeply loved and was in a relationship with, they got sick, they had pain, and they even died. This nonsense of health and wealth and all of this kind of stuff is craziness. Here's Lazarus. He is intimately, maybe Jesus' best friend. It appears that Jesus had a, a, a different kind of relationship, not a better relationship, but a different kind of relationship with his family than he had with the apostles. He was pouring into them, training them, getting them ready that after he ascended that they would take over the leadership and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But he had just a friendship with his family and he deeply, deeply loved this family. And so someone really close to Jesus that he loved, it was a, a good friend of his, maybe his best friend Lazarus was. A tight connection, got sick and he died. Verse 2 tells us that Mary... Lazarus' sister is the one who anointed him. And so the sisters see what's going on. They recognize the thing, so they send word to Jesus. And verse 5 tells us this, or verse 3 tells us this. So the sisters sent word to him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. It's always important to understand the Greek here. So when the sisters send word, somebody arrives and says, says hey, um, the one you love, Lazarus, he's sick in Bethany, and you need to come do something about it. So the servant goes, and they tell us this word love here is phileo. It means brotherly love. And so when the person comes and finds Jesus, they say this, hey, your friend, the one you love as a brother, he is sick and he is ill, and it does not look good. Verse 5 tells us, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. That word is a different word. It's the highest form of word, which is what? Agape love. So here in 3 and 5, it says this. Jesus had such a unique relationship with his family that he loved them like a brother, like a sister. They were family. We were tight. I loved them with a brotherly love. But not only that, I loved them with the highest form of love. I loved them with a God kind of love. So Jesus loves this family if you can't see that. There is a relationship 
There is a care. There is an intimacy with one another. And I think it gives such unique insight into the humanity of Jesus. He needed friends. He didn't just, he, he was God, obviously, in a body. But he needed people that he could talk to and relax with. And I don't know about you. I don't know how you see Jesus. I think he probably was the most fun person to ever be around. And the reason I believe that, I know he's the man of sorrows. I get that. that was, he was going to take on our sin. I know that. But can you imagine living a sinless life and being so intimate with a father? There is nothing that can come from that but joy. And he must have, that's why children like to be around him. That's why they came. That's why moms, it tells us, brought their children to Jesus so that he would hold them. Moms don't do that, do they? Unless they trust the one they're bringing. So I think Jesus had incredible, incredible joy. I think he was an incredible person. So here we have, he loves this family. He gives us unique insight into his humanity. But there's a higher perspective that Jesus speaks of in verse 4. Look at it. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was gravely ill... He said, this illness does not lead to death. Jesus knows all things, and he could see and he knew what was going to happen in regard with Lazarus, and it was going to lead to a greater glory and a greater faith. Isaiah 55, famous words. Listen to what Isaiah says in 8 and 9. For my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So this word comes to Jesus. Hey, your, your friend that you love deeply, he's going to die. You've got to come do something about that. Sisters have sent. You've got to do something. And Jesus says, hey, this illness does not lead to death. It does lead to death, but Jesus knows what he's going to do because he's all-knowing. He knows it's going to lead ultimately to life. And while those who are in Bethany are worried to a place of extreme stress, Jesus was not stressed about it because death means nothing to him because he's God and he has power. Death does not get to have the final word on the Christian. Isn't that great this morning? Death does not get to have the final word on the believer. So Jesus has a higher perspective when he gets the news because there's a higher purpose. And the higher purpose is that Jesus is going to arrive in Bethany, Lazarus is going to be in the tomb for four days, and he's going to raise him. And the higher purpose is what we've already seen, is that God's going to get the glory, and Jesus is going to get the glory, and Jesus is going to get the attention. The higher purpose is that the glory of God will be seen. Jonathan Edwards wrote, that, wrote this. He said, The object of all things is God's glory, and when God gets his glory, God's people get their joy. And at the end of the story, there's going to be this unbelievable joy that happens and takes place. Sometimes when things happen in our lives, sickness and death and trouble, heartache, disease, whatever the case may be, often we ask the question, why? And I think we as believers need to ask a different question, not why, but what or how. And this is what I mean by that. Something comes, we should ask the question, God, not why, but God, what can I learn from this trial that's come to me? God, how are you going to use this to shape my life to be more like Jesus? What are you going to do with this? And so sometimes we just need a different perspective. And you see, God understands this, that love means giving us not what we want, but giving us what we need. And what we need most is not healing. What we need most is to see the glory of who he is. That's what we need to see more than anything else. 
And so the sickness had something so much greater in mind than the grave. And it was the glory of God. So let's look at the next thing. Let's look at what happens. Look at verse 6. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now let's just stop there for a moment. You think about this for a moment. Okay, I just have established for you, he loves this family with this unbelievable love. Somebody comes and says, Lazarus is about to die. Jesus gets the news. He's got a higher perspective, but here's what he does. He says this, okay, thank you. You can go back. And he stays two days more right where he is, continuing to do ministry. Somebody might look at this and go, gosh, how insensitive Jesus is. Did, they just not, did he just not hear that his best friend is about to die and he can come and he can do something about it? Why is he staying preaching, healing, talking, ministering? Why is he continuing to stay there? And here's what I want to talk about for a moment. I want to talk about the delay in the story. And I want to talk for a moment about sometimes the divine silence from God that comes into our lives. This silence doesn't delay a long time, but it's delayed for two days. So we know this in 11.4, Jesus is going to get great glory from the raising of Lazarus. So why does he hang around two days? Why didn't he get on his business and get to Bethany and do what the purpose was? As he delayed, two sisters are watching their brother suffer. Perhaps they had to go through more emotional pain and heartache but again, Jesus is fully aware of the situation. He gets it. He understands. And he could see beyond the grief to the greater good because he knows what he is going to do. I want to remind you and I this morning that we never suffer alone where God is not aware of things. The Bible affirms that he's aware. Let me just share a few. Proverbs fifteen three: The eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping, keeping watch on the evil and the good. God knows what's going on. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus sees everything. Psalm 62.8, trust in him at all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Time, watch this, more time or less time is not a problem for Jesus. He's not needing more time. He doesn't need less time. He's not dependent upon time to do the things that he needs to do to accomplish something. This has always been true for God, has it not? He doesn't operate like us where we need time for things to happen, to build things. God can just do things regardless of time, but he does it in time. And he always does things according to his time, not ours. And his raising of Lazarus is not going to be because somebody rode into town and told him what is happening and taking place, but he has a greater thing in mind. And just, just to remind us as well, he doesn't have to do something before an event happens to change the event. He can do it afterwards because he's God. He's not a weak God that he's dependent upon the clock. He's an almighty God. He's an eternal God where he can do anything that he wants. And so listen, sometimes he may delay but he is never late. And when he delays, he's never wrong. Because God operates in a way that is different than what you and I know. Our problem is this. 
you probably don't struggle with this, but I'll just confess I do. We've adopted this prayer mindset. Lord, my will be done, and right now, please. That's what we do, right? Do this now. The problem is our watch is never synchronized with the eternal watch. Just totally, completely different. And so here it is. Jesus gets news. Your best friend is dying, and he hangs around two more days. The issue for us is this. is kind of like if you're at a play. There's a curtain that's there, and it's drawn, and they're making changes back there, and you kind of don't know what's happening and taking place. There's a backstage where stuff is happening, and you just can't see it. And you kind of get glimpses of it and, and stuff. And it's kind of that way with, sometimes with life for us. We just don't always see what God's doing. And we don't understand it. But God's good. And again, I just want to say, His delay is not because He doesn't care. His delay is because He just doesn't operate the way that you and I do. And He always has a greater thing in mind for us. The issue for us is we're just so limited in our understanding and that's where faith has to come into play. We just have to say sometimes, God, I don't get this. Will you use this to shape me? But I'm just going to trust you anyway. I, I don't know what to do about this, but I'm going to trust. So the delay has in mind also, and I'm going to say this several times as we go through this. He wants to, when he gets to Bethany, to have the largest crowd that he can have there. And he's working it. He's working this thing because he wants people to see that he's the resurrection and he's the life. We call this sometimes the dark night of the soul, and I don't have time to go into all of that. But you probably possibly have been there where you just wonder, how, how am I going to move on from this? What do I do? You know, Paul wrote something pretty interesting in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He said this, he said, we have this treasure in what? Jars of clay. God puts his presence, the spirit inside of us, and it's, he doesn't put it in gold shiny silver boxes he just puts it in basic clay pots that have cracks where when he shows his power the light comes forth and he he gets the glory from what he does and takes place and so God puts this so that his surpassing glory will be on display and then Paul says these words in verse 8 he says this in 2 Corinthians 4 he says we are afflicted in every way but not crushed we're perplexed but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in this jars of clay for the glory of who in, in our bodies. And so this text that Paul writes here in regard to the trouble and the heartache and the dark night of the soul, like the sisters going, where's Jesus? We sent word, why did he not come? Where is he? Listen, sometimes there's just a darkness, sometimes there's a trouble that comes to our lives, but there is a limit that God puts to it. Listen to what he says, Paul says. We are afflicted, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but God never forsakes us. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. So as believers, sometimes we have this pressure to bear, but the pressure, though it may be severe, is not designed to crush us, but to shape us. And sometimes we're confused and we're perplexed, but the lowest point that we may get in a depression or a sadness or a heartache 
is not ever designed to bring us to a place of complete and total despair. Let me remind you and I, our Lord himself was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to what? Sympathize with us. Oh, Jesus gets it. And there's great comfort in that. So Jesus gets news and he just hangs around for two more days. And then he says in verse 7, look there. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Hello, hello, do you not remember four months ago? We're in the temple and they want to kill you right there. And we left, got away, and now you want to go back there. Look at verse 9. Jesus answered, are there not, don't you love the way Jesus always answers the people in the Gospels? They're like, okay, this, and he's like, okay, he just says this thing, and like, what in the world are you talking about? So Jesus speaks a proverb in verse 9. Are there not 12, uh, context again. Hey, if we go back there, they're going to kill us, and they're going to kill you. And so Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in the day? And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, if you had been there that day, you would have gone, oh, oh, yeah. I absolutely, okay, you've clarified it all for me, Jesus. Let's go to Jerusalem. I'm ready to go. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? So he tells them, verse 7, we're going to go to Judea. Hey, uh, Jesus, you know what is going to happen? They knew that that trip would be dangerous. They knew what that trip would lead to. And so Jesus listens to them, and the words that he speaks to them are ones that define and describe how you and I need to walk in life. Jesus gives us a unique insight here into how he saw what he did, why he did what he did, why he said what he did, why he trusted the way that he trusted. So look at it again, verse 9. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the... Light is not in him. As Jesus often does, he speaks a meaning that's deeper. They're hearing, oh, okay, so we're not going to travel at night, maybe? Okay, we're going to go during the day. Okay, okay, I got to know there's something more. Three things he says here. He says, one, listen, there's 12 hours in the day. The Jews divided the day from sunset to sundown, and they divided the day that way. So there's 12 hours of this, and there's 12 hours of that, and they called them watches of the night. And so he says, hey, there's a fixed time during the day, Jesus says. So I'm going to walk in the day, not literally the daytime. But then he says, walk at night, you'll stumble because you can't see the things that are there. And he's talking about a deeper meaning. So let me give four implications of what he says here about how you and I, are to, you and I are to, ought to travel in life. First one is simply this. There is literally nothing that can lengthen or shorten time. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing can lengthen or shorten time. Time is fixed in God's purpose, and Jesus is saying, so this is the case for my life. The Father's not going to lengthen my life or shorten my life because I have come for a fixed purpose, and the Father is going to lead me, and I'm going to walk with Him to the appointed purpose. Therefore, I don't have any concern, if we go back to Judea, that people are going to want to stone me because I've come to die on the cross. And so he has no... So he says, listen... It's still daylight. Secondly, there's enough time to get the work done. So let's go on the way back near Jerusalem, regardless of what people 
may say and what they want to do, God the Father has a plan and a purpose for me, so there's enough time, there's still time to get the work done, so let's head back. And then thirdly, I think the implication is this. Jesus' disciples were shocked that he would return to Judea, where he was a wanted man there. But Jesus responds by saying he still had work to do. And thirdly, it just means this. Do not waste time. Jesus didn't want to waste any time. He didn't want to do so. The word 12 hours here were figurative to speak of the allotted allotted time that God the Father had for the earthly work of Jesus. He was not going to waste the daylight. He had time to minister to people. And he had waited and delayed because he had a greater purpose in mind. Fourthly, in regard to the traveler's instructions, use your time to walk in the light, not the dark. We have an option here to follow God or not follow God. So here's what Jesus is saying. You cannot lengthen or shorten the light of day for the Father has fixed it according to His purpose and my life is in the Father's hands. Therefore, I'm going to continue to walk in the Father's plan and purpose for me so man can't really do anything to me until the appointed time. So I'm just going to continue to walk in God's purpose and we're going to go back to where they want to stone me. And Jesus is saying this, I don't have to be cautious Because there's not going to be any stumbling for me. There will be no accidental steps for I walk with eternal purpose. I'm in my Father's hands and and man cannot lengthen. Man cannot shorten my days. So I'm not worried about that. I'm not anxious about that. And I believe for you and I, the traveler's instructions of Jesus was simply this. He didn't worry about what somebody else might do to him. He was going to live in such a way where he said, I'm just fully trusting in the Father. And when my time comes, my time will come. And so I'm just going to trust the Lord. And I'm going to be passionate about him. And I'm going to pursue him. And you and I must live this way until we cannot breathe anymore. And Jesus is sharing with us here. Listen, this is how I live my life. So we're going to go back to Judea because my life is in God's hands. It's not in the religious leader's hands. It's in the Father's hands. So you and I have to live in such a way to not fear men. Look at verse 11. So after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus, by the way, the disciples were friends with Lazarus as well. He's fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And before you're too hard on them, We would be just like them. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Lord, it's good when you're sick to sleep. (laughs) That's a good thing. So he's going to wake up again. And so they just have lack of discernment. 13. Now when Jesus had had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Can you imagine how many times he had to do that over and over? Okay, guys, you didn't get it again. Okay, listen, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, listen what he says. I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. I just want to briefly touch on this. Three things with this. I'm talking about discernment, belief, and the cost. Discernment. You and I are so desperate in need of discernment. Our culture has lost it. We don't, have, we don't have wisdom anymore. We just have being driven by the flesh, being driven by satisfaction for ourselves. And, and so for three years now, you would think after a while that when Jesus says things, they would have come to understand, oh, he must mean something maybe a little bit deeper. 
But here they are once again, and, and again, before too hard of them, we're just the same way. Some of us have been in the faith for decades, and do we not still struggle to understand what Jesus says? So, and they're experiencing this in the moment, and it's really difficult sometimes in the moment to understand what is happening and taking place. And so, discernment is so necessary. You know, Jesus was hard on the Pharisees and the religious leaders because of their lack of discernment. One time he got on to them, in Matthew chapter 16, he said, you guys can figure out when it's going to rain. You figured out the weather, but you haven't figured out the times connected to the scripture. You can't get it. You can't discern that. You don't know it. And I believe the lack of discernment leads to a loss in the church of sound doctrine and reverence of God and worship. And all it leads to is a shallowness of faith and a lack of commitment to biblical living. Because you see, spiritual discernment is this. It's the ability to see and separate biblical truth from error. And the guys here just aren't fully getting what Jesus is saying. And so he tells them, listen, Lazarus has died. And I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm not glad that Lazarus has died. But he says this, I'm glad that I wasn't there because we're going to go there. And my aim in your life is I want to increase your faith And I want to increase your belief. Jesus always has this in mind with our lives. And when he gets to Bethany, four peoples, four groups are going to greatly have their faith increase. The disciples are going to believe more after this miracle. Mary and Martha are going to believe more after this. There's a crowd that's gathered around. They're going to have their faith deepened in who Jesus is. And you better believe that Lazarus is going to get that Jesus is the Son of God. He's awesome. He can raise the dead. And I've been gone for four days, and I'm alive again. God always has this in mind. So there's this discernment that we need. There's this faith and this belief that we've got to have in who Jesus is. And there's a counting of the cost. We have so, I think, personal opinion whether you care or not, that I have one. I think we've done Thomas a disservice. We've taken a brief moment of time with him after the resurrection and just said he, he, just, he doubted his whole life. He didn't. We understand from Thomas that he likely went to India and he died a martyr's death in India. So there's just sometimes brief moments of our life and sometimes people just continue to put that label on us and that shouldn't be the case. Because Thomas here says, okay, I was there when they were about to stone you and we're there. And if we go back with you, I know what that means. Okay, hey guys, he turns to the other guy and says, hey guys, let's go die with him. You know what that is? That's deep love. That's deep faith. That's deep commitment. And so now Jesus is going to get to Bethany. And he's going to give life to a dead man only to soon give his life for spiritually dead men. Let's look at the story now. 17. The arrival of sovereign power. And when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, actually about one and three quarter miles away on the east. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. It has been four days now. All hope is gone, but let me remind us, any place where Jesus is present is one where something powerful can take place. 
funerals in those days are very interesting. The Jews didn't embalm. You died, you went into the tomb that day. They pretty quickly got you into the tomb. They were caves, and inside caves, if you've, ever, if you've been to Rome or you've been places that have catacombs where they chisel out the rock and they lay the bodies in there, it was the same way in Israel as well. So you had these caves. Um, the rock was a little bit softer, and so they would chisel those out, and they would put the, the bodies in these shelves in there. And so because they didn't embalm, it was a quick process. And so, so uh, funerals lasted seven days of mourning, and then there were 30 days following that of continued lighter mourning. But when Jesus gets near Judea, there's this wailing. He gets near Bethany. There's this mourning. There's these, they, they had professional wailers who would come and they would participate and they would help in the mourning process. Most likely Mary and Martha must have been very influential people because it, the text says there people kind of the indication is people from everywhere came to be there. And they were there supporting them when Jesus arrives in that day. And on the day of the funeral, when you took the body to the tomb, if you were in the streets and people were walking, you just kind of joined in and you kind of went with them. You know, we pull over and turn our lights on, or at least we're supposed to do that, um, uh, just out of respect. But in those days, you just joined the procession. You went to them as they put the body in there. And so, so when Jesus arrives, Lazarus has been dead. He's been in the tomb for four days. The mourning process is still going on and taking place. And when he arrives, look at verse 19, or look at verse 20 where I read 19. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, he wasn't even to the house yet. Wasn't even, when she heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Do you all remember Luke chapter 10? Jesus and the disciples have come to their house. Martha's where? She's in the kitchen. Where's Mary? sitting at the feet of Jesus, Martha has had enough and comes out and interrupts the sermon and says, Lord, tell my sister to come to the kitchen and help me. She's just lazy sitting at your feet. Come on, tell her to come and help. So Martha appears to be this, she's the action person. Mary appears to be the reflective person. Isn't it interesting how God puts people and families and they're just different we're just different and these two sisters are uniquely different so look at 21 so martha hears goes and meets jesus verse 21 martha said to jesus lord if you'd been here my brother would not have died but even now i know that whatever you ask from god god will give you and jesus said to her your brother will rise again now sometimes i think here we may think that Martha kind of is getting on Jesus. I don't know. I don't think necessarily she's getting on to Jesus. I think she's brokenhearted. And here's the one that she knows can bring healing, and, and he has been delayed, and he hasn't gotten there. And so she just, she just is wrestling with all of this. And I think she wants to believe, but she's still wrestling with it. And there's three statements that she makes, and I don't, um, we'll see them here in, well, 21. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died, but now I know that... Whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus didn't have to ask permission to raise Lazarus from the dead. So she doesn't fully understand. 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Future, not necessarily today. 39, take away the stone. And Martha said of the dead man to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. The King James Version, I don't know if you have King James Version, it says, he stinketh. <laughs> Great words, he stinketh. 
All of those that she just said there are not full-throated confidence that Jesus can do something, but I want to remind you, an overcoming faith is not one that puts limits on God, regardless of time or regardless of what happened. So sovereign power comes, Martha comes, Jesus says to her, your brother's going to rise again. Yeah, I know he's going to on the last day. And so she gets the doctrine. Watch this. She gets the doctrine. Job spoke about that my flesh will go away, and yet, Job says, in my flesh I will see the Lord again. So Job believed in a resurrection. Earliest book, earliest book, likely he was a contemporary of Abraham, Job was. And so Job speaks about a resurrection. Daniel 12, 2 speaks about a resurrection. So there was an understanding. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. But watch this, watch this. He looks at her and he says, Martha, your brother will rise again. Yeah, Lord, I know that he's going to rise again on the last day in 25. Look what it says. But Jesus said to her, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now listen to this. In saying these words to Martha, Jesus is saying, quit thinking about the event. Look at me. I am life. I am the resurrection. So he's calling her away from the event, from the theology. Not that there's anything wrong with that because it's God's word. But he wants her to focus on him. He's come. He can make the change. And so he wants her to think not just on an event, but to think on him. And he is making an emphatic claim here. I am the life. I'm the resurrection. I'm the resurrection. And I am the life. And this great promise of the security of our salvation is connected to here. And look, look what he says in verse 26. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And he says to her, do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this? So it doesn't mean that we're not going to physically die. It means that if we believe in him, we have faith. We, don't spirit, we die physically, but we don't die spiritually. And Jesus is asking her two questions of this day, okay, or affirms, okay, you get the doctrine but do you believe that I'm the one who's going to bring all of this about? I'm the one who's going to raise people from the dead. Look at 27. Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. It's an amazing moment in Bethany. As the apostles were not fully there yet, and right there outside of a tomb, Mary places her faith and trust and says, yeah, I believe. I believe. Let's look up here. We have got to get our mind on the glory of Christ and off of the grave. That's what Jesus is calling her to do. Quit thinking about things that are dead. I'm calling you to life. I'm calling you to life. So Martha comes and she speaks face to face with Jesus. Look at 28. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, hey, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, Mary, she rose quickly and went, to him verse 30 and now jesus had not yet come into the village so martha's like martha runs and meets him outside of the city mary's still in the house word gets back verse 30 now jesus had not come into the village but was still in the place where martha had met him 31 when the jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw mary rise quickly and go off they followed her supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there now when mary came to where jesus was and saw him she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Watch this. She's beautiful. So one sister speaks to Jesus face to face and deals with her ifs. 
face to face. One sister deals with her ifs at Jesus' feet. Neither one of them are wrong, just the uniqueness of dealing with this. So Mary falls at the feet of Jesus and speaks it. Martha's at the face of Jesus. I want to talk about this just for a second. The importance of dealing with our ifs. You have an if in your life? They sound like this. If we had not moved, if I had not taken that job, if my health, if my boss, if my spouse were different, if I hadn't gone there, if he or she would just, if I had more money, if God would do this, then I would follow and I would surrender. Both sisters, one at the feet, one face to face, say, if, 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 if you would have been here, this whole story would be different. How do you deal with the ifs? I think you deal with them honestly, and I think you deal with them like it says here. One, Martha dealt with them beholding Jesus looking at him in his face. So sometimes you just go to God and you just talk to him face to face. Lord, I'm wrestling with this. Sometimes we deal with them just by bowing and worship, saying, God, I'm going to worship you anyway, just like Job did. I'm just going to worship you. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And thirdly, sometimes we deal with our ifs just by believing in his promises. We just believe. So sometimes it's beholding, sometimes it's bowing, sometimes it's believing in the promises. All right, 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. 35, Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could he, this is John 9 where this happens, who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? And then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Verse 33, this word weeping of Mary and the mourners is the word klino, and it means this, sustained weeping in mourning. This is authentic. They're not faking this. They are really mourning Lazarus. And so Jesus says, where have you laid him? By the way, in case you were interested, this is the only time in the Gospels Jesus ever asked for information. And it wasn't because he didn't know, but just interestingly, it's the only time he ever asked for information. It's like, okay, so where have you laid them? And again, I think he's trying to get a crowd to the tomb. And then it says this, Jesus groaned, deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That word in the Greek means, you ever been grieved so much that you just go, mm. he just made a sound. So moved by what he was saying in regard to the morning. It means he groaned in himself. In a moment, it's going to say he groaned again, and it's the picture of, and the Greeks use it, it's a picture of when a horse would snort and dig their foot into the ground, and they snort. That's the picture of Jesus. That's what it's describing as John writes this. Why does he groan? He stood in the presence of death that afternoon. You know what the ultimate reality of sin is? It's death. So he stood in the presence of death that afternoon, and he knows more than any other person that death is the ultimate outcome of sin, and sin only brings heartache. So in that moment, a righteous anger is moved in him as he watches the mourners around him. 
with broken hearts. And he chooses to identify in that moment with the sorrow that comes from the vileness of sin. And in that moment, a righteous wrath in the form of a sound is uttered from the mouth of Jesus as he groans in his spirit. So he groans and then it says, Jesus wept. If you can't memorize Matthew eleven thirty five, you got a problem. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. This word is different than klino. This word in the Greek means a sudden outburst of tears. It's sobbing out loud. Jesus did that. Does that tell you something about his humanity this morning? He watches the morning. He's standing in the presence of death. He knows it's the outcome. There were two times Jesus cried in the Gospels. This one and one time when he was on a hill looking at Jerusalem. And he wept for Jerusalem and said, you've killed the prophets. How I longed for just to draw you in like a hen draws her chicks. But you refused. And in this he affirms the natural emotions that we have as people. And I love the fact in the story he doesn't tell anybody to get over their grief. Just lets it play out. He feels it. He joins in it. But I want to touch on something here for a second. Why did he delay? He was going to do what? Did he not know he was going to raise Lazarus? Yes. It was the purpose. So he sees the morning. He's standing in the presence of death. He knows it's the ultimate outcome of sin. But I also just want to offer another perspective. He knows what he's going to do. He knows he's about to turn their mourning into what? dancing he's going to turn their sorrow into joy so I think the tears I lean more this way now are more about what he's about to do I think he feels I think he feels the sorrow but I think he also knows because he's come he's about to do something that they're just going to go wow that's the son of God there that's the son of God so could they be tears of joy over what he's about to do Psalm 30, 11 says, You've turned for me my morning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing of your praise and I'll be silent. O Lord, my God, I give thanks to you forever. Bottom line is this, a very emotional moment outside the tomb. Look at 39. Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you if you believed? you would see the glory of God. Guess what Mary did? She believed. You know why? Because she let them roll the stone away. So they rolled the stone away, verse 41. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted out of his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, so let's just stop there. He's going to prove that he's the resurrection and the life. How does he prove it? By doing a resurrection. John chapter 9, he proves he's the light of the world. How? By giving light to a man who was born blind, he can see. Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. You know how he proved he was the bread of life? He fed about 20,000 people with bread. So he's about to prove it again by a miracle. And he tells her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? If we will believe, we will see the greatness of the glory of God And Martha's faith is seen that she agrees to allow the stone to be rolled away. Watch this. His delay for four days and everything that has happened to get a crowd to the tomb for him to do this incredible miracle. So they take away the stone. He lifts up his eyes and he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. Jesus didn't have to pray out loud. He didn't have to ask the Father for permission. This was already the plan. And so he prays out loud for the purpose of what? So that everybody standing around would know what was just about to happen. You know, he still does this for us. He intercedes. John 8, 34, who is to condemn Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Hebrews seven twenty five. consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And all this just means is he still has the Father's ear. He had the Father's ear in Bethany that day. He's got the Father's ear right now for his people. Look at 43. And when he had said these things out loud, he cried out with a loud voice. Now listen to this. The Greek is funny here. It literally means this. He yelled out with a loud voice with a loud voice. That's what it means. And he said, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, and his hands and his feet were bound with linen strips, and his face was wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. By the way, if he had not said Lazarus, everybody would have come out that day. They had to identify who he wanted to come out of the grave. Because you remember what happened on, when he died on the cross? People came alive that day, saints of old, and walked around and and as John Wright said, the peop- there were people still around. They came out of the tombs. That's how significant Jesus' death was. It, aw- it awoken the dead. That's Good Friday. Jesus fought death at Lazarus' tomb, and he plundered the grave. Praise his name. He plundered the grave. You see, only Christ can give life. We cannot. Only he can. So come to him. Come to him. So this possibly happened on the Wednesday before the Monday when he came into town and they said, blessed is he. And then from that to that to Friday, they shout crucify. We don't love him. We don't love him. That's our God. That's the one we get to have faith in. And if you're here today, I want to remind you, if he can do that, he can raise your dead soul and he can bring you into faith. Let's pray.